Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are joined by Salida Zito, who was with the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, joined the New York Post in 2016, also on CNN, as well as Brad Todd, the founding partner of On Message Inc., and a Republican advertising and opinion research agency. They have produced the book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Bill. So uh, this book came about, and correct me if I'm mistaken, uh, Selena, you uh, were in Western Pennsylvania where you're born and bred. You were talking to the voters who would become uh, part of the coalition that elected Donald Trump president. Uh, and uh, Tell me more about how it came to be that you interacted with so many of those people and and, uh, and how you brought Brad Todd into the mix. So I covered national politics for a Pittsburgh-based newspaper that has since gone in a, in a different direction. And, you know, part of my job was to, and it was, a you know, it's sort of rare for a smaller newspaper to have a national reporter, but I was given the uh, ability, the luxury, if you will, in, in, in this era of downsizing newspapers to uh, cover the elections in, in the way that my instincts taught me. And so I was always traveling. I was go, I always had an understanding of, and, and a lot of that has to do from Brad in, into where the, the votes were needed to come from. From, um, in this election for either candidate to win. And so I spent a lot of time in not just uh, Western Pennsylvania, but all across Pennsylvania, as well as Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, to look to see, also North Carolina and, and Florida, to look to see and understand what was going on in the country. It's something that I've always done. It's something that I do with House elections as well. And when I had making a, made a particular trip across Pennsylvania, I went to all 67 counties in July of 2016, I had come to the conclusion uh, that this race was likely over already that but people had not understood that it was already over this part of the country this rust belt area uh has long been a swing area uh, it's always been an area that both parties have invested a lot of resources in um, but there's a sense that the the rural voters the blue collar voters you were talking to they seem to have a sense that they were ignored uh and that the media didn't see uh, the Trump juggernaut coming. Um, what did you see that other people were missing in 2016? What I saw is, is something that didn't happen overnight. Like this, this, this coalition has been forming, I would argue, for at least a decade. Uh, uh, there was this understanding um, in in uh, that that people were feeling disconnected, not just from politics, but also in in throughout culture, and that people were finding were were sort of willing to do something different, but something different never sort of happened, you know, never sort of came around until 2015 when Donald Trump decided to come down an elevator in his Manhattan Trump Tower. The, there was something that that he that that connected. Uh, 
him with those voters in a way that, you know, sort of no one had ever seen before. And part of it had to do with his brazen style. The other part of it was his willingness to take on both political parties. And, and, and people saw in that communication, in that moment, a sentiment that they had shared, that both political parties had sort of failed them and that they were going to see where he was going to take them. One thing that I, I mean, I missed this stuff in 2016 too. I was writing, writing plenty of stuff about the race and and not properly uh, picking up on it. And what I feel I missed was the white working class vote had always broken the Republican way. Uh, although Democrats got a piece of it. Uh we were eight years past the Great Recession, and while things weren't uh, fantastic for everybody, they were better than being in economic freefall as we were eight years ago. So it didn't strike me as a moment ripe for a great revolt. Uh, what was what was that catalyst that 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 spark that made people say, "This is the moment where I'm going to pick somebody." who's taking on both parties, who doesn't have traditional political experience, who doesn't have a policy background. Why 2016 and not other years uh, in this region? You know, I think, I think, Bill, that it was because both parties put forward front runners who were sort of the last wheezing gasps of the old legacy brands. You know, institutions in our country are all dying. Um, you know, you, you, whether it be Religious denominations, much to chagrin of people like me, uh, you know, are 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 on the decline. Big, na- massive national retail brands are collapsing. Newspapers are collapsing. You know, when we were kids, Sears and Roebuck was the was the place where most of us bought everything for our home. Well, Sears and Roebuck picked out the brand of tools, Craftsman, the brand of appliances, Kenmore, and that was the choice. Someone at Sears made those choices for you, and the, I think a lot of voters saw in Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush. That same thing. Oh, the party leaders have decided what we get, that they think they can force this on us. And I I think that Jeb Bush's candidacy actually was the first spark that made Donald Trump a viable contender on the Republican side. So this book, The Great Revolt, uh, is fascinating because it combines personal stories of voters you met on, uh, on the trail with your own survey that you that you conducted of uh, a couple thousand Trump voters in uh, the Midwestern area, and you combine that to create uh, seven archetypes of Trump voters. I mean, we talk about white working class as kind of a monolith, but you break it down in a much more granular way. Can can you walk us through? Um, what these archetypes are, which and uh, and, we, and we can we can go into more detail with, with each, but give us the initial broad brush of what you found. Sure, I'll start, and then so we can uh, trade off. Uh, you know, the, well, the archetypes. By the way, we don't we don't we're not arguing that this that all Trump voters are going to fit in these seven are in the only into one of these seven archetypes. Some people fit into more than one. And there are some people who might not be in any, any of the seven. We decided that these were seven that were important and distinctive. Uh, either they are people for whom they, this, they were switching to Trump or from, from the Democrats or switching from non-voting, or they were somebody who should have been susceptible to Hillary's campaign. You know, Hillary's campaign ran almost entirely at women, especially younger women under 45. She aimed at college educated Republicans. 
that, that, that was the second, secondary target she had. And so there are two groups of those people uh, who, who in, on the side of the female voter who didn't go to Hillary, who you'd thought would have, that we profile. One of them is called, we call girl gun power. The other one is, is, is silent suburban women. And um, I'll let Selena touch on those two groups in, in, in a minute. I'll go and run through all of them. Uh, the, the other the other groups that, that was a, the target of Hillary's campaign, we call them rotary reliables. You know, Hil- much has been made that Hillary did well among college-educated voters, even college-educated voters in previously Republican counties, and that's true. Uh, however, one of the things we uncovered, which we can talk more about in, in, as we go through this through this this portion of the, of the podcast, but Hillary didn't do as well with college-educated voters who lived in rural counties and smaller industrial counties and counties, even even in suburban counties that were not on the whole educated. In those places, she did kind of really, Donald Trump did all the numbers he needed to do with college educated voters in those places. So in Trump country, if you will, he didn't have a college educated problem. And so those voters we call rotary reliables. Uh, A couple other groups, rough rebounders, paroistas, paroistas are infrequent voters. uh, And then, uh, uh, red-blooded and blue-collared is a Trump group that we've we've heard a lot about. And the last one is King Cyrus Evangelicals. So why don't we now go back through that list and, and you tell us which one you'd like to talk about. Well, there, there, there's so much I want to uh, delve into here. But um, on the college-educated question, which I think covers the girl gun power, power and rotary reliable categories, uh, it, it, it struck always struck me after reading the exit poll data after the election that – the, the divide between the college educated and non college educated struck at least among white voters was the biggest gulf in the race, and it certainly isn't a question of smart people versus dumb people. Uh, uh, but it does seem to be a huge cultural divide between those two camps. Is is that reflected in uh, girl gun owners and, and rotary reliables, which are um, uh, they're they're more uh, business owner types in these areas? Correct. They are. Uh, I'll start with the rotary reliables, and Selena, why don't you take girl gun power? The uh, um, rotary reliables. Uh, you know, if, if it really there was a college educated gap between Hillary and Trump. Trump did better with non college. Hillary did better with college. However, the more important gap we believe is where you what kind of community education attainment level you had. If you're in a community that had less than average college degree holders. Donald Trump did fine with college degree holders who happen to live in those places. If you're in a community with above average college degree holders, then Donald Trump did worse than he should have with both college degree holders and non-college degree holders. And so in the end, it's not really as much, it didn't turn out to be as relevant what your educational attainment level was as to what the educational attainment level of your neighbors was. There is a great deal of social pressure. You know, voting is a communal act. Uh, it's a thing that we do not just by ourselves, but we do it to be part of a community. Uh, and if you look, there was definitely in this election, there were divides uh, on education, but those were exacerbated by how, what kind of pressure you experienced by the kind of people you live around. So, Selena, can you give me an example of the, the notion of there being a, a niche market of women gun owners is something that's not – not well explored as far as I know, anywhere else. Although there, I do know on NRA TV they have a um, they have a reality show that is that is women targeted. Um, what is? Give me an example of somebody who fits that profile, and you know why is a woman gun owner uh, prioritizing that issue as opposed to 
equal pay or reproductive rights or uh, other things that are child care, universal education, preschool. Uh, why is the gun ownership such a critical component of that person's vote? Well, a lot of these women, I'll, I'll introduce you to Amy Giles Meyer, and I don't want to give away Miss um, uh, Maurer's, you know, entire part of, excerpt from the book. But she was, a, or she is, a um, college-educated, uh, successful business, businesswoman. She lives in the suburbs. She's married. She has children, uh, and she identifies herself as a feminist. She sees her. That's her. You know, that's how she, that's her worldview. But she believes that as a feminist, one of the most empowering, and feminism is all about, you know, the empowerment of women. One of the aspects of that empowerment is, is gun ownership and the right to protect yourself and to be able to protect your family. And, and so on that issue, even though she had problems here and there with, uh, some of, uh, Trump's behavior as a candidate, she did, she was able to be more pragmatic about that because she wanted to, uh, vote for the things that were, that was at the top of her priority. And that was the preservation of the Second Amendment. Um, I'm also very interested in the Piratistas category. I actually wrote a piece. Uh, late in the campaign in 2016 about my own Perot vote in 1992 when I was a college student, but I was a Perot voter who came from being a Songus voter. Uh, and I remember <laughs> and I, and I remember at the time, because you look at the exit polls, you know, the Perot vote was pretty evenly split, Democrat and Republican, as far as who their second choice would be. And a lot there were a lot of people like me at the time who would prioritize deficit reduction, uh, and Perot was big on that. And when I was volunteering and he dropped out in the summer, a bunch of us wanted to kind of stick together and press the two remaining candidates on deficit questions. And there were some people who were like, it's Ross Perot or bust. If he's not in, I'm out. And at the time, I was like, who are these people? (laughs) Who is that attached to Ross Perot that you would not show up to vote if he wasn't in it? (laughs) But it sounds like when you talk about them being infrequent voters, that there are certain personalities that these folks seem to be attracted to. And if they're not in the mix, they don't show up. Am, Am I getting that right? That's right. We call them the shock troops of American democracy. You know, there are people whom who they're either one of two traits. They either vote for the most sort of outsider uh, guerrilla candidate that they can find, or they're someone who votes very, very infrequently and just drops into the voting pool in sort of a Halley's Comet-like orbit. You know, very elliptical. Not it takes a lot to interest them and make them think that they that the election is worth participating in. Uh, by our calculation, Trump's vote included about six percent. Uh, it was about six percent of these, these of his vote, and and of course you, you can that's give or take a little bit, right? Would have would have been in in this category, uh, and the people who were energized for the first time in a long time to vote uh, for for a presidential candidate or a candidate of any kind. Uh, we profile one woman in the book who had not registered to vote in her entire life till she was seventy years old. Uh, first presidential election she's ever voted in was this one. Uh, first time she thought it was worth being a part of. Uh, we we haven't we profile another voter in this category who had voted for Shirley Chisholm, Barack Obama, Ross Perot, uh, and Donald Trump. You know, quite a quite a collection of uh, of people. But they and what they had in common is they were all the outsider in their race, uh, uh, their respective race for the presidency. Uh, so. Donald Trump was that that's a unique group uh, that only perhaps he could have mobilized in this campaign. And it's also, in my, our opinion, the toughest group 
uh, for other Republican candidates to hold when it's elections that don't involve Donald Trump. So I saw in the book, you said the most these group, these people are the most difficult to keep engaged without the glue of Trump. And one thing that I wonder about is how how tight is this coalition? Because you speak of this coalition as something that's going to have some staying power beyond Trump. Uh, but Trump won very narrow, narrowly, not even with the mo- a majority of the popular vote in, in close races in several of the swing states. So if the Paratistas, if the novelty of Trump wears off and they don't, they don't show up a second time, you also mentioned, uh, I, I believe, the red-blooded, blue-collared and the rough rebounders, they are somewhat skeptical of corporate influence. Could those folks be unhappy with Trump's corporate tax cut and not show up the next time around? Are there th- is the glue of Trump very tenuous because of the disparate nature of these different constituencies? Well, all those things are certainly possible, but we live in a binary political system, though. And for those things to happen, which they certainly could, those same voters would have to conclude that the Democrats had learned their lesson and they were offering something different. If the Democrats continue to offer Obamaism on steroids, which is currently what we have, uh, which is the the sort of policy re- so re- agenda that they rejected in 2017, and you're right, it's narrowly. Uh, however, it's it's not narrowly when it comes to the United States Senate, uh, especially in this midterm election this year. You know, there are 10 states Donald Trump carried that are currently represented by a Democrat who is on the ballot in the U.S. Senate this year. In five of those states, Donald Trump won by 18 percent or more. So and there's only one state that has a Republican senator on the ballot this year that Hillary Clinton won. And so if you got a stasis 2016 electorate, even one that degraded a little bit for Republicans, which certainly happens in the midterm of a president's first term, that certainly could happen. But it is not out of the question that you could see Republicans win four or five seats currently held by Democrats. Democrats win one seat held by Republicans. You pick up a net four seats in, in, in the U.S. Senate. And I agree, I'm not arguing that's the likely outcome, but it's certainly plausible. Uh, that would put Republicans at their highest number of United States senators ever. Uh, and so the coalition, in order for it to be durable, it, it can be a narrow coalition in the in, in in the presidential election, so long as it's in the right places. Do you have a specific message for Democrats of what they should take from this? Because it, it is the message that you should be trying to appeal to one or more of these constituencies by changing certain positions that you have? Or is there a message that, you know, there are certain voters out there that don't show up every election? I mean, there's certainly uh, critiques on the left that say you're there. People stayed home for you, Hillary, because you didn't energize them with enough populist progressive positions. Is, is there another type of Paratista style voter that would show up if Democrats did something that wouldn't make sense for a Trump coalition to uh, a Trump coalition person wouldn't like. Well, I'm not going to give Democrats advice because my job, my day job (laughs) is to try to beat them. So I'll let Selena take that one. Well, you know, I believe that both parties um, have a lot to learn and there's a lot that they could glean from the Great Revolt. I mean, if you didn't get this election, you should be reading the Great Revolt. If, if you didn't see any of this coming, you know, whether you're a Republican or a, a Democrat, you should be reading the Great Revolt because it, it, it unlocks some of the and, and sort of blows up some of the stereotypes that are um, that are out there about what people believed what happened 
because they wanted it to be that story. But you know, it's complicated. It's it's uh, it's it's um, nuanced, and and both parties suffered because of him. So I believe that. Sorry, Brad. I believe that both parties have a lot to learn from this, and I think the party that gets that. The party that picks up on that is the one that's able to move the the coalition uh, in their direction, maybe temporarily, uh, but they they have um, the ability to do that. I would argue that this coalition, Brad, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a conservative populist uh, um, coalition. I, I don't know if it's exactly a Republican you know, purely Republican coalition, uh, because there's, you know, think about the traditional Democrats that are in areas like the ones that I grew up in in Western Pennsylvania, who still preserve a more traditional, more conservative value sets. They tend to be more religious. They tend to um, be gun owners. They tend to be supporters on on the life issue. And and so, you know, but they, they, they're, Demo- they're registered Democrats. So there's an opportunity uh, for the Democrats as well as the Republicans. But, you know, both of them sort of have to step over. The, the ones that are the least happy with the Trump uh, coalition are the ones that, you know, on the left, the resistance needs to sort of step away from from th- that's, you know, sort of stubborn hatred. And the same, I would say, for the never Trump um, proponents, I you know, if they want to bring them back into the fold, calling them names and making fun of them is not going to do it. Well, you know, I, I think the, the one of the galvanizing moments in the campaign is when Hillary called said that half of Trump supporters are a basket of deplorables. Uh, a lot that that if, we, if you see if you look at our, our survey in the book, uh, roughly a quarter of Donald Trump's voters report having voted for Obama, and it, it, his voters in these Midwestern Rust Belt states reported having voted for Obama in 2008 or 2012. And so, therefore, there's a pretty good chance that she's not saying that only those people are not deplorable, right? She's, she, those people saw in that comment that she's saying, I'm deplorable. And, and I think that, that the, the beginning point for, for this conversation for Democrats means that, they, that you can't merely look at this election and the next one and the next one after that and say, if you don't vote for us, you're a bigot. Uh, I, I think that it, well, there's no way back to these voters if that's where Democrats start. Um, you know, Stan Greenberg, who's a Democratic strategist with, for, for President Bill Clinton, uh, we interviewed him for the book. And his answer for this, he's, he's long studied populism, especially in Macomb County, Michigan, which is one of the counties in this book. And his argument is, is Democrats have to get back to a message of middle class economics uh, and that that's the answer. And I think there is definitely uh, a lot to that. Uh, these these the Trump voters and the Trump coalition are, are, are there's as much populism as there is Republicanism in there. Eighty nine percent of them blame both parties for the dysfunction in Washington. Seventy two percent say large corporations don't care if their actions hurt working people. And so the challenge on the Republican side of, of the aisle, my side of the aisle, is that we have to accept that in, in politics is a coalition game. Coalitions always mean some amount of compromise with people who agree with you on most things, but not all things. And to keep this populist coalition, conservative coalition together, a few things are going to change. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, Republicans would not have been for a big federal infrastructure bill because that's big government, not small government. Uh, that's conservative. That's, that's the conservative orthodoxy. We would have said, let the states do their infrastructure, period. Well, that's, and I think there's some members of Congress who still would take that position. 
That's not where this coalition is. This coalition very clearly would support a federal infrastructure bill uh, that would bring manufacturing jobs and increase increase our ability to make products here in the United States. That's a compromise. Uh, the Repu- would, they, would, would they would they be mad if a infrastructure bill doesn't happen by 2018 or 2020? Well, I think it remains to be seen how many of, of what's the threshold for how many promises they have to you know a president has to hold 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 up to to have achieved what he set out to do. Uh, for every president, that's a little bit different. Um, you know, certainly you look back at George H.W. Bush breaking one promise, the read my lips, no new taxes. That was enough to beat him. It was enough to get Ross Perot in the race and beat him. Uh, so I think you have to, you know, with the question for Trump will be, is he still fighting the right fights for this coalition? Uh, I think number two is that Republicans have to acknowledge that big is bad. Uh, I think you're starting to see a lot of distrust uh, among among the Republican coalition for big tech. Uh, that that in itself can broaden our, our our coalition, right? Because a lot of people are very skeptical of what Silicon Valley is collecting from them, what they're doing with information, and are they being transparent and honest about it? Uh, that's a place where Democrats are wedged uh, in, in many ways. Uh, if, if you look at sort of the way that that the that Hollywood continues to drift further and further left culturally, uh, you know, while Republicans we like we're free free speech advocates and First Amendment advocates, uh, and we should remain so. I think that we should not hesitate to use the court of public opinion to hold Hollywood accountable for for what it what it does to our culture. That's a that's a populist notion, and it fits well with a lot of conservative social positions. So I think you have to look at those sort of things. Well, for instance, budget balancing for its own sake is maybe a lot more difficult than it was uh, in the Newt Gingrich era, right? For for Republicans, it may be difficult now. We may have to frame budget balancing in terms of we're cutting this program for this values based reason. Uh, you know, for instance, we we may have to do a whole lot more on welfare reform instead of saying, oh, well, entitlement spending is out of control because welfare reform says we're going to honor work and we're going to prioritize work. Whenever we say, oh, we need to cut entitlement spending, that sounds like it's budget balancing for the sake of a zero. Now, uh, circling back to what you were saying about uh, race, uh it would seem commonsensical that if you call a voter a racist, that voter is unlikely to vote for you. Uh, they will not appreciate the the uh, the accusation. Um, you you say in the book that race did not come up a lot in your conversations with Trump voters. There's certainly other analyses that have been done that suggest that race was a factor. Uh, that uh, white working class America is nervous about uh, their their standing in, in, in a more multicultural society, and there was a backlash related to that. Uh, some voters might have voted for Obama before, but not like how he talked about Trayvon Martin uh, in the second term uh, and thought he was too close to Black Lives Matter and shifted, thinking he was being less race neutral. Um, what what do you th- how much do you think I mean, you talk about culture being an issue when you talk about King Cyrus Christians, for example, worrying about uh, socially conservative values? What is the interplay between culture and race in 2016? And what is that and how does that uh, impact our politics going forward? You want to go, Selena, or you want me to? Um, well, I'll start and then you can finish this up. Um, well, you know, as, as we noted, you know, uh, it, these voters were very uh, just upset about this notion that race plays in it because a lot of them, I, I believe it was 30 percent 
um, voted for Obama and they voted for him twice and they personally liked him. Uh, we also have several of our um, architect types um, uh, who have biracial or, or have adopted, you know, African-American and minority children. So they were very insulted by the notion that, that this was about race and, you know, and, and they pushed back on that against that strongly. In the portion of Trump's electorate that is is non-college educated, uh, one of we did in a previous podcast where where one of the hosts made a made a a very good point that that's where you find a whole lot more uh, sort of biracial families and blended families by race, and that 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 the world looks a lot different for them. Uh, and I think that that's accurate. And I think a lot of the cartoons and caricatures that have been made about uh, Trump's voters, you know, being motivated by race are driven by people who uh, largely live in uh, fairly ivory tower communities and, and, and where life is a, a, a good bit different and where, where they live in, in, they don't know a lot of Trump voters personally. And I think that's driven a lot of the analysis to be wrong in this uh, post-elect environment is that so many people who do this for a living don't, don't live in the places where Trump voters lived. And we sort of have self-sorted, you know, Charles Murray, the famous social scientist, Wrote in his book Coming Apart about the eight, eight, almost nine hundred, eight to nine hundred, what he called super zip codes, uh, where where the where the elite of the elite in terms of educational attainment congregate, and that those places tend to be where the analysts and the brand decision makers of everything in our life live, be it media, be it politics, be it commercial brands, uh, be it entertainment, and that those places are uh, increasingly disconnected from the customer base for those decisions that they make. Uh, and if you look at uh, how this electorate uh, went in terms of um, in those places, it, almost every one of those jurisdictions, uh, Donald Trump would have run not only behind Hillary Clinton, but well behind Mitt Romney. Uh, in, the t- 80, in the 100 largest po- population centers in our country by county, Trump was behind Mitt Romney in 86 of those. Uh, but if you look at the bottom 1,500 in terms of size, Trump ran ahead of Mitt Romney in 1450. So all but 50 of the bottom half in size, Trump's ahead of Romney uh, counties in, a, in, in the country. And so there is this, this, this schism that has emerged, and you see it in a lot of brand decisions. You know, a lot, 15, 20 years ago, corporations shot away from politics. They sought to not take issues on, positions on political issues because they wanted to sell their product to everyone. And, and they, they looked at a political divide and said, oh, that's a quick way to divide our customer base in half. Uh, now it is not uncommon at all for corporations to take positions on on cultural issues and societal issues, issues that are not settled in our society and are very much up for debate. And a corporate a brand comes out squarely on one side or the other and watches as that their their ratings among the other side dwindle immediately. In a very connected world, that's not something that happens over months. It's something that happens instantly. And corp- you see a lot of people who are making these decisions at corporations and brands. Just like people who made decisions for the Republican Party or for the Democratic Party or for the national media in this election, they made those decisions because they live in a very insulated environment, in a very fairly thick, educated, affluent bubble uh, that's pretty far from where, where the average Trump voter lives. Uh, and, and it's certainly their right to make that bet and certainly their right to divide their audience and their customer base in half and say, we care more about this half than the other half. It's totally a free country. They can do that. But that doesn't mean there are not going to be economic consequences. Uh, we're talking to Selena Zito and Brad Todd, authors of The Great Revolt, published by Crown Forum on the New Books and Politics podcast. So uh, if 
these voters in the Trump coalition in the Great Revolt, they don't see themselves as racist. They take great offense to the accusation that they're racist. Uh, is there a way for people who believe Trump has policies that are unfavorable to non-white Americans, is there a way for them to talk about those issues that won't rankle the ears of people in the Great Revolt Coalition? Which issues do you speak of? You, you're talking about race-related issues? Well, are you talking about I mean, police brutality, for example? Immigration, uh, obviously, is a, is a big one. Or economic disparities amongst different races. Uh, is there a way that, that those things can be discussed that people who say, I'm not a racist, will hear it and say, and you can have a dialogue? Or is the argument that, look, if Democrats want to get back in the game, they have to deprioritize those issues and get back to straight economics because that's what these voters want to hear? Well, I think it's certainly possible, for instance, in the, in, in the law and order category, it is per- certainly possible to say the polit- for you to address the issue by saying every we should have e- – police training that's excellent and equal in every place in America so that every citizen is treated equally, right? That is a conversation that I think most most conservatives are, and, and most of these post in the populist coalition are law and order folks. They want, they want people to be treated equally under the law, and they want to know that the law is enforced. If you start out with the conversation of law enforcement in this country is inherently racist, you're going to shut, they're going to shut down. Uh, and, and you almost have to be willing to check your allegations of bigotry at the door. Uh, if you're going to talk about talk about these these conversations, because an allegation of bigotry goes straight at someone's character. It says you're not worth having a conversation with. Uh, I've judged you for your 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 heart from the start, uh, and, and I think that that's that is a a, a in, in an American political left that is increasingly driven by identity politics and hyphenation. I think that that is a a difficult hurdle to get over to say. Okay, we're going to address the substance of these claims and not start with accusing the other side of having bad hearts. I couldn't agree with Brad Moore. Uh, I think that one of the things that turns people off is that is that it's not their interrelations with people that divide people, you know, the divide the races, but how politics and how the media presents issues and, and starts it out with a division and, or an accusation. And, and, and of course that, you know, ruffles people's feathers and makes them uncomfortable and makes them feel as though they did something wrong when they didn't even do anything wrong. You say in the book, um, Amazon is in the process of destroying Walmart and what's left of Main Street. Similarly, Donald Trump's electoral coalition is smashing both American political parties, often in spite of Trump himself. So even if Netflix disappears, traditional cable providers will never have the monopolistic hold on viewers they did 20 years ago. Similarly, after Trump, traditional political parties will not have the same sway with voters they've had over past election cycles. So I, I'm curious to expand on this because tr- tr- Trump's presidency will end, if not in 2020, 2024. I am assuming, uh, whether because of age or general disinterest, he's not going to remain a political force himself for perpetuity. Where do you think, how has he changed politics and uh, and changed, or, or should me, how are the voters themselves changing? How are these coalitions changing in a way that will last beyond the Trump presidency? Well, I think first off, the, the, these things never stay the same. Uh, you know, looks like continental drift. You know, the continent's always in motion ever so slightly. Uh, political entities are always in motion ever so slightly. Uh, we all have a political journey we take throughout our lives. Our communities do, our states do. Uh, it, it's not a static 
static industry or a static static part of our culture. Parties change, and as parties change, people respond to those changes by moving themselves. Uh, it is the question will have to. You, know, you already see the Republican Party. Much has been made that oh, the Republican Party is changing to adapt to Trump. I would argue that it's really changing to adapt to Trumpists, sort of Trump, the, the voters who preferred Trump to the, to standard issue Republicanism. Uh, it's really that's that 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 kind of uh, sort of very unabashed, tough approach that Trump takes, uh, especially when it comes to globalism, especially when it comes to talking bluntly about about things. You know, Donald Trump, when he talks about the Second Amendment, he talks about it in unequivocal terms. Uh, he's mentioned the word Second Amendment more than any president in history already, and he's not even been in office two years. Uh, and, and people who value the Second Amendment, gun rights supporters, they value the fact that he's not afraid to say it. And so you're finding, I think, other Republicans, and, and this is a thing that's happening with both parties. I think that Barack Obama was a, certainly a lot more liberal on cultural issues than Democrats who preceded him, and that has empowered an entire generation to be very bold in their cultural liberalism, which has caused Democrats problems at the ballot box. And Republicans are going to find out if this causes us trouble at the ballot box with one group of our supporters, and does it gain us group another group of our supporters? And it is it is it is a little bit difficult for for to hold coalitions together, any coalition, and and both parties always struggle with that constantly. And because Trump is the sun that takes up all the space in this galaxy right now. Uh, you know, we are all focused on what happens with the Trump coalition. Well, first off, suburban upscale, higher income Republicans who were cooler to Trump than they had been to Romney, Republicans have to find a way to keep them happy with economics, right? The tax cut uh, is, is those voters have always voted on taxes their entire life. They've always voted on foreign affairs, strength abroad their entire life. Those issues have always resonated with them. Trump has delivered in both those spheres. So the question will remain, do those things triumph over the hesitations about Trump himself. Meanwhile, Trump's the people who prefer Trump instead of Republicans, does his style keep them engaged? Does the fact that other Republicans now mimic his style keep them engaged? And so it's really it's it's a juggling act for for any Republican campaign to keep those two groups of of, of swing voters together. Uh, last question I'll ask for you, Selena. I don't know if you saw the Dan Balls piece at the Washington Post the other day where he, Washington Post, been checking back in with a number of upper Midwest Trump voters over the past 15 months, seeing where where they stand on Trump. And, and they noticed some unease creeping in, um, some concern about how he, he's governing. When you talk to these voters, uh, are you sensing anything similar? Um, and do you think it's, is it pronounced or is it just the normal, you know, up and down? Any pres- you know, Obama had his ups and downs too, and still his coalition came back for him when it counted on Election Day 2012. What, what's your sense of how the average Trump voter and how well this coalition is holding 15 months into this presidency? Well, I would argue that, and Brad and I have had this discussion a number of times, that not much has changed since November 8th, 2016. If you voted for him and you woke up, you know, then you stayed up late at night, you were optimistic and, you know, excited about the future. If you didn't vote for him, you were sort of in a state of disbelief and and you believe that his election was uh, fraudulent or you know uh, you know that it, you didn't support it I haven't found uh, the evidence 
showing uh, a waning in support for him um, um, among the people that I vote, I, I've talked to. I've, I've gone back and talked to them. Um, I also approach um, reporting a little bit different way. I don't fly into the areas. I don't take interstates. I, I take back roads. I, I stay in bed and breakfasts, and and I I stay in the community for for a while, and I get to understand and hang out and live and go to church and go to football games and 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 try to immerse myself as much as possible into the community. When you do it that way, you earn people's trust. And, and, you know, as we saw in 2016, where people were hesitant to say that they voted for him, there still is a hesitancy, you know, when someone comes, you know, comes into your town and, you know, says, Hey, you still like this guy. And maybe he tweeted something goofy that day, or, or maybe he said something that you're not comfortable with, uh, but you still like him. You're you, there, there, there's a chance that you might say, Hey, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about him, but that might not be your most honest person. Your own, your most honest self. The book is The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics by Selena Zito and Brad Todd. Thank you so much for being on New Books in Politics. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Bill. Appreciate it.